There are people who get up every day and work to protect us from toxic chemicals in our food, our water, and our air, in the products we buy, in the places we work, and in our homes. They devote their lives to preventing cancer, learning disabilities, and other harm, but they are mostly unknown and unheralded. They're Toxic Avengers, and you'll meet them here on the Toxic Avengers podcast. Welcome to episode 16 of the Toxic Avengers podcast. Thanks for joining. In this episode, we have part four of my interview with Ted Smith, founder and executive director of the Silicon Valley Toxics Coalition. In part four, we pick up our conversation about recycling e-waste, including the genesis of EPR, extended producer responsibility, and the limits of a bottle bill approach to recycling e-waste. We discuss the coalition's collaboration with the Basel Action Network and the current state of e-waste recycling, including certification guidelines and the influence of the European Union's regulation of e-waste. We talk about the circumstances that led to the Campaign for Responsible Technology expanding their work to be international, now the International Campaign for Responsible Technology, ICRT. Ted then tells a brief story about his interaction with Steve Jobs and the evolution of Apple's response to the e-waste issue. We discuss the outsourcing of hazards from electronic manufacturing and the book written in conjunction with the coalition's anniversary, Challenging the Chip. We also discuss the ongoing lack of transparency on worker and reproductive hazards in the electronics industry and implementation of the CHIPS Act. We end with Ted's reflections on founding and running a public interest organization and his thoughts on the next generation of activists. It was a real honor to speak with Ted Smith about his life and career of activism. He was very generous with his time, enough to cover four episodes of the podcast. For people wanting to learn more, I've linked in the show notes to an oral history interview of Ted conducted in 2000. Here's part four of my interview with Ted Smith, recorded in March. The extended producer responsibility, I don't know if I'm, I'm going to wade in out of my depth. I don't know if those sort of take-back programs are a good example of the idea of extended producer responsibility, meaning the manufacturer has to take back and be responsible through the life of the product and the end life of the product of then covering it and disposing of it properly. Did you already have a notion of EPR, extended producer responsibility, did you create that or was that already out there and you knew about it or we we imported that from Europe. We we learned about what was going on in Europe. Oh golly in the I think going back to the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And and I actually was able to go to a meeting of the European Parliament when they were debating their what became known as the waste environmental let's see the WE directive waste electronic equipment directive and they were talking about extended producer responsibility, saying that if you make the producers be responsible for the life cycle of their own products, that will give them the incentive to design them in, in better ways. Right. And, and if they're going to continue to use hazardous materials in their products, it's going to be much more expensive to treat them at the end of life. 
And so that's going to be an incentive for them to get rid of the hazardous products. It was it, it actually was an idea that originated in Sweden mm-hmm. and then permeated the EU. And then we brought that back to the U.S. along with a number of other groups and began. That was this kind of the centerpiece of the Electronics Take Back Coalition was um, that that was the, the way to internalize these costs, which was going to be the long-term solution. We actually prepared a a schematic of a roadmap of how we get from where where we are to where we need to go mm. and going through all the different hurdles that are out there but the the long-term vision was was extended producer responsibility we went through a big fight about that in the california legislature and and originally there was a bill passed that did call for extended producer responsibility which the industry resisted but it nevertheless passed but then the governor vetoed it um, for reasons that were I, – I, I never did find out why. I, I just assumed that it was that the electronics industry got in his ear and decided he was not going to go that way. Which, gov- which governor was that? It was it was Gray Davis at the time okay. uh-huh. uh, be, before he was impeached. Yeah. Um, and, I'm sure you um, fought very hard against that impeachment <laughs> after he vetoed that bill. We were not very happy with the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but the next year it came back in a different form and it was supported by the television industry. And it was that rather than producer responsibility, it would be setting up recycling operations and that there would be state funding to help promote it. So it was like the, the bottle bill. Yeah. It was a bottle bill type of model. Yeah. And that took the responsibility away from the producers. And so that went through and it was signed into law. And that's what we, we currently have in California. We were able to uh, focus on a producer responsibility model in all these other states. And so that's what one, one of the discrepancies now between states is that you have some with an EPR law, but, but California still has its bottle bill type of law. It's like a bottle bill for e-waste, you're saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And- you know, in, in Santa Clara County, we do have a a facility here now that's run by the county government where you can call and make an appointment and then go drop off your e-waste. And within and they give you certain parameters of what you can bring and what you can't bring. Right. Uh, it's, it's a free program. They then will, if it's reusable, they'll get it into a reuse market. If it is not reusable, they'll get it to e-waste, responsible e-waste recyclers. So it's a functioning program, but, you know, it's one facility for a county of well over a million people. And that I don't know what percentage of e-waste is being recycled here, but it's pretty small. And this is one of the premier programs in the country. So I would say that we're still at a point where the um, the extent of the problem is not not being addressed anywhere near um, sufficiently. And I imagine that since I'm not sure what year this kind of work started around Dell and and the e-waste, but whenever it started, the amount of e-waste has skyrocketed. Yeah, escalated. Yeah, yeah. And I haven't even seen any data recently that would even track that over time. It'd be good to maybe somebody's doing that, but if so, I haven't seen it. Yeah, I do remember going to a, a meeting early on with a bunch of EPA and other staffers, government staffers, to present the case for why e-waste was a problem. And this was all when it was brand new to them. Yeah. And and it has certainly grown into, I mean, the, the awareness now has certainly vastly improved over what it was. It's just that the solutions, again, haven't kept pace. 
What year was that that meeting when when you're saying is sort of like early, relatively early on? Like when do you feel like I, I actually don't remember. I, I think I I probably would have a record of that here someplace, but I think it, I would have guessed it would be maybe early nineties. Yeah. Okay. So there is such a thing as responsible e-waste recycling. Is that 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 is a thing? Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's really been developed by the Basel Action Network. Mm-hmm. They have a um, and they've been working on this. I mean, they were involved in negotiating the original Basel Treaty, so it it goes back many many years. Mm-hmm decades and and they have evolved it started out we were working with them on a what we started calling a producer's pledge of of true responsibility mm-hmm. and it defined what that meant and it meant you know not exporting it meant dealing with the hazards in an appropriate manner um, separating things out and so you can treat as hazardous waste the stuff that was hazardous and treat as regular waste the stuff that was not that became a certification, which now is, you know, very, very detailed and includes everything from, again, not exporting to proper handling of waste, but also uh, proper protections for the workers doing the, the, the e-waste recycling. Right. And it, it, they now have oh, a large number of recyclers that they actually certify that have pledged to follow this, this set of guidelines and they have an enforcement mechanism uh, to make sure that if you sign on to it, that uh, you're doing, you're you're walking the walk, basically, and that that has taken off. It's 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 there's a significant number of recyclers now around the country that are certified to that standard. So I mentioned there's there's another standard, and I unfortunately can't remember the name of the other standard at the moment, but it 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 has a similar uh, approach. It, it's a in my view a somewhat less stringent standard, and is therefore more favorably viewed by by some companies who think that it might be a little bit less expensive to do it that way. Mm-hmm. But uh, And then there's a lot of recycling that still goes on the old-fashioned way outside of either of those certifications. Right. And so when, when community groups do a e-waste recycling event, which they think they can do to you know, kind of help the help the problem. Um, they have to be really careful about who they work with then as a recycler, because if they work with some of the really low end recyclers, the cheap ones, yeah. that that they're not going to have this that same kind of protection for workers and against exporting, et cetera. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, the worker protection issues have to be extremely important if they're dismantling. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. It's just that's a lot of toxic stuff. I, I've I've been to some of the the facilities and and you know the state of the art, oftentimes is just shredding things in these massive industrial shredders right. that you load stuff up on a conveyor belt and it goes up and then it comes down and they shred it and they separate it into the various parts and they try to separate out the hazardous from the non-hazardous waste, but that's extremely difficult to do and the the amount of dust that is created in that kind of a shredding operation. Uh, if you're breathing that kind of dust, it's really, really a mess. So there has to be very strict protocols for protecting the workers. And oftentimes they, they have to you know wear respirators or other protective device so they don't continue to breathe all that crap. Right. So it's, it, it, it continues to be a huge issue, which again could be solved if you just got rid of the hazards. Now, the other thing that we, we got you inherited from the, the Europeans was – the other part of the WE directive, which is called the Restriction on Hazardous Substances Directive. Yep. And that's the one that said, 
that nobody sh will be allowed to sell into the European Union any uh, electronic equipment which contained a any one of a listed set of very hazardous materials, including lead, um, which at the time was still very uh, widely used in lead solder, mm -hmm. but a, a, a series of other uh, very, very hazardous materials that were often used in electronic products. And that has had a, a sea change also, because if, if a company wants to sell into the European Union, it means that they want to sell into, you know, every place else in the world also. Right. And so a, a local or, you know, a, a regional set of regulations became basically an international law. There are no international laws on any of this stuff other than the Basel Convention, which I said the U.S. hasn't signed on to. But but the WE directive has become the de facto international law. And so um, as far as I know, companies are no longer using lead and some of the other really nasty materials in making their products. So it has helped to clean up the the products and, and therefore the e-waste. Some of the older equipment is still going to have lead in it, but the newer equipment will not. And so, but nevertheless, there's still, uh, you know, many, many hazardous chemicals that end up in the products. Right. Were you... So were you following the passage, the development and passage of the restriction on hazardous substances? Was that something you were kind of yeah. tracking? Yeah, we, we, we commented on that. Mm -hmm. And again, since we had the experience from, you know, documenting worker exposure here to groundwater pollution here from the hazardous materials, right. we had some, some authority to weigh in on all that. And we were very supportive and we worked very closely with European allies to, to make that happen. One another thing we did was that the the American Electronics Association organized their members to lobby against it. And we got a hold of their lobbying mm. directive. Um, and we started organizing about that. And we actually did a lot of work with a, a national coalition on that one. And we we learned that it was being led by the US trade uh, representative, USTR and that EPA was a kind of a silent partner in the whole thing. And mm -hmm. I actually ended up talking with a guy at EPA who was the one person in charge of all this. And he was admittedly quite chagrined by the whole thing because yeah. he, he didn't, he didn't like them lobbying on this to try to weaken it down. But he said, because the, 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 the AEA had gotten the USTR to go ahead and adopt their lobbying position against these things, saying it violated the world trade organization laws. Uh -huh. So, it, it got into a whole area of, of debate that was way beyond anything that we'd ever dealt with before. But I, I tracked down the guy at the EPA and he said, yeah, they, they treat us like we're, you know, the, the, the dunce in the corner, they will make up their decision and then they will come to us and say, this is going to be the decision. Okay. And, and they give us an hour notice before they went in to, to present it to the USTR. So they were, you know, on paper, they were part of the coalition, but they, they were not, a, a, a real partner at all. But we found a student, a grad student, who was very knowledgeable about WTO rules to help write our response to all that. And so we, su we, sub we submitted a lengthy document uh, in opposition to the USTR and to the AEA uh, to the European Commission. And they ended up not adopting the, the AEA position on that. So we felt like that was another worthwhile um, effort to, to undertake. And again, that was one of the reasons why we began to realize that 
our efforts to form CRT as the U.S.-based group really needed to branch out to, to work internationally. Because, again, by that time, industries were setting up shop all around the world, particularly in, in Asia and Mexico. Right. And so it was not only what was going on in the European Union to help push the, the envelope, but it was also all this other stuff going on in, in areas that, you know, were oftentimes completely unregulated and, and where the the workers were subjected to, you know, much more harsh working conditions and, and much higher exposures to the chemicals and where the the environmental regulations were, if they existed at all, they certainly weren't being enforced. So that that all led to the realization that we needed to put an eye in front of the CRT. Right. Let me ask you, well, more about that, actually. But first, we haven't talked about probably the biggest name in consumer electronics, certainly in the United States, which and uh, their hometown is Silicon Valley. So what can you say about Apple and your experience with Apple? Oh. <laughs> well, the first thing that pops into my mind, which is probably not necessarily the focal point, but um, at one point, I think it was before the iPod was to be released, we were pressuring Apple to adopt a, an EPR type of program for their e-waste and to you know, try to get rid of some of the hazardous substances, as we were doing with all the different companies. Yeah. And it, it, it aroused the ire of Steve Jobs. It, it, they sent two of their top people over to our office to meet with us because mm -hmm. we were planning a protest. And they tried to get us to call it off, saying that would be a really bad time, bad thing to do, particularly at this time when we're about to launch this new product, which is so secret, but it's going to change the world kind of thing as they do. And we said, well, what is it? And they said, well, we can't tell you. And I said, well, you can't tell us what you're doing. We're not going to agree to, you know, back off. That, 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 that'd be stupid. So they left and were not very happy. Shortly after that, I got a phone call from Steve Jobs oh. and just frothing at the mouth, screaming at me, swearing at me. You know, you blah, blah, blah. What's the matter with you? You, you, you don't know what the hell you're doing. Blah, blah, blah. Um, and then. He hung up. So that was my one experience in actually talking with him. And I, I think talking is, is an exaggeration. I probably get in about three words. It's just listening to his rant. But it told me that that really got under their skin because they they then launched their new product and they had these very fancy launches. And they did this one in San Francisco at the Moscone Center. And we showed up with a big banner that had big pictures on it. Greenpeace had helped put this together. And it said, today's iPod equals tomorrow's iWaste. And and that, again, got – it was a pretty good banner. Yeah. <laughs> People would kind of say, what's this all about? And it gave us an opportunity to explain, well, you know, this stuff's all going to end up in somebody's uh, e-waste graveyard someplace. And we got we got to do better than that. And it, again, went out on the wire services all around the world. And, and Apple was not happy. It was after that that – they were having to deal with the suicides at Foxconn in China. Right. And that was the thing that was really the turnaround for them. Yeah. And it was so embarrassing. It was the most, I would say, egregious thing to happen in in all of the electronics issues that would, that, that have happened. Because the, 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 the story was that the working conditions were just so gruesome. 
that many, many young workers decided that the only way out was to commit suicide by jumping out the windows. And that finally got Apple to uh, start paying attention. It was after that, I think, or around that same time that they invited Al Gore to be on their board. They invited Lisa Jackson, who had been head of the EPA under Obama, to come in to be their head of environment. We actually got a meeting with Al Gore at one point after that with some of the biggest socially responsible investors in a small meeting at his place. He had a, a some kind of a suite in San Francisco mm-hmm. and just saying, you know, we've got to get, you've got to get through to Steve Jobs because there'd also been a big board meeting to try to get them to deal with their e-waste issues. And some people came in from China to to testify at that board meeting and talk about what was going on in terms of the the irresponsible e-waste uh, export that was happening and how it was harming people and how Apple had to take a lead on all this. And again, they got shouted out of the meeting and, and Jobs s- said from the platform, I'm just so tired of this bullshit. And that was, that was his response. So it was after that, that we had this meeting with Al Gore. We said, this guy is out of control. He's, he's not helping your company. Um, you have to intervene. And he said, well, you got to understand this is a process. Uh, yeah, he can be hot headed, but we're gonna we're gonna turn this thing around, and and eventually they did start. And I think it was around that same time they brought in Lisa Jackson, but it was a a turnaround that has been, you know, to some degree, quite quite remarkable. And it it, it really didn't start really happening until after Steve Jobs died and and Tim Cook came in. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was really the 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 main reason why things have have changed there. And they now have some of the best chemical specialists, hazardous waste specialists, green chemistry specialists on their staff. They've brought in some very good people, hmm. but they, and, and they have taken a lead in, in uh, some of the, the areas where I continue to work. I, I, I don't know if we've mentioned a thing called the clean electronics production network, but it's, it's a multi-stakeholder collaboration that Apple is part of as well as HP and Dell and hmm. Intel and a number of other uh, kind of blue chip companies. And with the goal of achieving uh, zero exposure to workers of hazardous materials throughout the whole global supply chain. So it's, it's a goal that is, uh, you know, a very, very good goal in my, my view. Yeah. It's turned out this is now, we're now into the third or fourth year of this thing. And there's been some progress, but it's, it's again, glacially slow. It's just compared to what and compared to legislation, at least it's doing something. Mm-hmm. So, but the the Apple has has taken the lead on a number of the issues there, and we've identified two lists of chemicals now for elimination or substitution, including some of those chemicals that were on that new EPA list that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. So that's that's all moving forward. But the big the big challenge to Apple remains that their their whole production strategy remains locked into China yes. with low wage workers now scattered throughout China and the working conditions there, um, as far as I can tell, certainly haven't improved. And with the growing tensions with what's going on with China, that's going to be a huge issue, I think, going forward. And Apple is beginning to try to diversify and they're setting up some manufacturing 
uh, with their, again, their main partner, Foxconn in, in India. And they're talking about maybe setting up some manufacturing in Vietnam. So they're beginning to diversify a bit, but by far the vast majority of their manufacturing is still going on in, in China. And that um, it's, it presents all the same kinds of problems that it always has. And I don't see them making big changes in that anytime in the near future. And I think there was some, um, maybe not at the same scale, but I mean, Foxconn itself has not, well, I don't know. What can you say about Foxconn? Have they altered their practices much? I was going to say, I thought I read a story about a strike in India or an attempted strike by some workers in India. Yeah, there was, there was a, example there there was some big problem of of a i think a toxic chemical release and the workers walked out and i think for several days disrupted production there foxconn continues to be the big kahuna of all the the major final assemblers Mm -hmm. and and you may remember that they had an initiative to put a plant into wisconsin and it was going to be a multi-billion dollar plant Governor Walker, when he was still the governor in Wisconsin, showed up. They did a big ribbon-cutting thing. Mm-hmm. They, they got billions of dollars of subsidies from the state. Um, I think they broke ground and, you know, tore up some dirt, but then basically abandoned the whole thing. And so it was a, uh, you know, a big splash that turned out to be a, a, a big, big mess for them. Uh, but they continue to be the world's largest uh, final assembler. But they're a black box in, in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. that they're totally secretive. They do work for multiple brand names, not just Apple. Right. They will have a, they will have a, you know, they plants sometimes have tens of thousands of workers in them. And they'll have one pod focusing just on Apple production, another one on Dell production, another one on HP production, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And their, their workers continue to be, you know, paid very little, uh, worked extremely hard hard hours. Uh, there had been some NGOs oftentimes based in Hong Kong that were trying to track all this and had done some reports on what the conditions were like. But since the the Chinese crackdown on, on Hong Kong, a lot of that has just evaporated. And so it's, it's, it's even worse in terms of lack of information now than it ever has been. Yeah. And it continues to, to bother me a whole lot. But my, my, visibility into what's actually going on is, is extremely limited. Mm-hmm. So sometime after the campaign for responsible technology globalizes and becomes the international campaign for responsible technology, you all published a book in 2006 called challenging the right. ship, which yep. has it, uh, you're an editor, but it's it, it's it's essays, and you I th- you think you contributed some of the essays, but it's yes. a whole group of people doing uh, talking about all I think all aspects from production to use to disposal, and including the workplace health issues and the globalization and what's happening in numerous countries, like you mentioned, where there are even less labor rights and less environmental regulations. So. Talk a little bit about the genesis of that book and sort of what came out of that book. It goes back to 2002. We decided to have a, a 20th anniversary celebration for Silicon Valley Toxics Coalition. And by that time, there was enough interest in, um, you know, emerging an international network that we invited in people from all around the world that we had 
either gotten to know or knew about. And we had a, a three-day meeting with incredible group of people from many, it was, I think it was 15 different countries. And after the, and, and there was presentations by, by many people. And, and one of the, the key phenomena from that meeting was that almost everybody was completely ex, uh, excited about running into other people who were dealing with similar kinds of issues that they hadn't known about before. Yeah. And that told me that, that there was a real need for this kind of a network so that people can share their information and don't feel like they're just isolated and on their own. And, and so one of the things, and we came out with a whole, you know, set of, of proposals of principles and, we decided that we needed to form this international campaign and we set up a, a structure and a, um, a set of goals to, to carry it out. And, and that, that was the genesis. And, oh, and, and we decided we wanted to publish all the stories that people were telling at, at this meeting. And so it took us four years to get from there to get this book published. But it, it, it is a, it was the first book of its kind to actually document the the whole range of concerns about the electronics industry all around the world and it continues to be cited by many other works since then there's been a profusion of of other literature that's come out some of it academic some of it by industry some of it by activists but uh it continues i i think i haven't gone back to reread the whole thing recently but my my sense is that it continues to be pretty pretty good grounding in terms of the whole range of issues that we've been discussing and, and particularly focusing on the exporting of the industry to other countries has also led to the exporting of harm, exporting of the hazards. Um, And so we say that when they outsource the manufacturing, they also outsource the hazards and those hazards are now being addressed by people all around the world. And that's another you know, valuable role I think that we play at this point is in providing, um, again, essentially technical assistance and, and historical reference for what workers and communities need to be aware of uh, when confronting these new industries as they pop up in their their communities. And so we've done a number of trainings of workers and communities in a number of countries throughout Asia and in Mexico also, where we present what we've learned what we and and present ways that, of suggestions for what workers and communities can do to better protect themselves and that's been i think a, a significant initiative and and the level of activism now around the world from electronics workers and allies is is you know really blossoming and there's been some very very significant campaigns focused on worker health particularly in Korea and Taiwan, mm-hmm. but also in, in, in China and many other places also. So all of that has been disrupted by the coronavirus, as has so many other things. Right. But and for the first time in three years, there's going to be another, uh, actually three sets of meetings coming up uh, later this spring with people who are all working together on these issues. And there's a number of new organizations that have come together also that are 
I think, making a big impact. So the, the, it's it's exciting to me to see the growth, not only in terms of the awareness, but in terms of the organizing, in terms of the uh, new organizations coming forward, using different kinds of strategies. And, you know, thinking back over the where, where we've come from, it's, it's, it's pretty significant. At the same time, when people say, are we making progress? My answer is always, well, it's compared to what? Um, and, you know, the industry continues to grow, continues to create new problems as we're continuing to try to solve yesterday's problems. Yeah. And that's always the issue, that we're always falling behind. Yeah. They're always growing faster and faster. Moore's law is still very much in effect. And the fact that th- our our side is is increasing is is important and it's significant but it's not keeping up with with the changes that are the industry's going through for sure right the two things that struck me reading that book one is something you just sort of alluded to is so that book is published in 2006 and again i know i've said this a few times during our conversation you know, just from 2006 to now that the amount of growth in the industry and again exponential yeah. It's just so yeah. striking. There's there is a lot of really good fundamental, like you said, framing the issues and talking about what's going on at that time, which is valuable. And yet, and yet, and then you just also know as you're reading it now. Oh my God, what happened is even, you know, just yeah. explosive. The- One of the things you just reminded me of is I was just thinking about this earlier this morning. In in. And again, I should have the date in my mind, but I don't. It was, I would guess, around 1990. I got together with a group of U.S. and European activists in in the Netherlands to discuss. And it was around the same time we were talking about extended producer responsibility. Mm-hmm. But we, we came up with what we called a sustainability commitment. And it was essentially saying... Each new generation of technological advancement should be met with equivalent advancement in social and environmental and economic justice. And so kind of tying in Moore's Law is like a sustainability uh, vision for a Moore's Law approach to the, all the issues that we're concerned about. Yeah. That's a good a good vision, but trying to figure out how to implement that is you know, we're a long way from that, yeah. but at least to have the vision so people can say, okay, if they're going to be changing this much, we have to do more to keep up with them on the issues that we care about and figure out ways of building that into their equation. Right. And one of the, the another thing that was prominent in the book is the industries, at least up through 2006, I, I'll be interested to hear if it's changed. They're pretty much total resistance to any transparency or really assessing the workplace impacts, the health impacts on workers within companies. There was a big dispute over one study, the national, um, I don't know if it was the government of Scotland or the, or the, or the, or the, uh, England, I think it was in Scotland had done one study yeah. that was then, you know, contested and just, it just struck out, stuck out that, you know, even after decades, I mean, there, I guess it's not surprising exactly, but that the companies are, you know, blocking as much as possible any real scrutiny of the actual long-term health effects of exposure to the chemicals in the workplace from their facilities. Yeah, no, that's that's right, and that's that continues to be the case. There's 
very little going on in that whole arena and, and documentation is, is largely missing. There's a couple of things that have happened back in the eighties when the, there was a lot going on both in terms of workplace uh, illness coming out and, and also the, the leaking underground tanks leading to what the state of California uh, deemed to be a significant causal relationship between drinking contaminated water from the leaking underground tanks and the incidence of birth defects, including heart defects. Right. We, we developed another campaign we called the campaign to end the miscarriage of justice right. and saying that the industry needed to do long-term studies on reproductive hazards as well as cancer in the industry. That eventually did lead to three studies uh, the first one at Digital Equipment Corporation of Massachusetts in the mid-1980s, followed by two additional studies, one done by IBM and one done by the Semiconductor Industry Association. Hiring uh, one, the, the IBM worked with Johns Hopkins and the SIA worked with UC Davis. All three of those studies documented a significant increase in miscarriages amongst the women who were working with the hazardous materials in production. So that was pretty significant. But they refused to look at birth defects, uh, and they never have done any work uh, focusing on, on cancer effects. Mm -hmm. And since that time, there have been no additional studies that I'm aware of done by anybody. Now, that, that's in the U.S., Globally, there have been some. There's been some work that's going on in both Taiwan and in Korea uh, because they, again, have long-term experience in dealing with electronics production there. And they have found some, Some. I mean, the, the, the RCA case in Korea led to hundreds of workers getting very sick, many of them dying from cancer that was related to their exposure. And after years and years of litigation going back and forth to their Supreme Court, the, the, there was uh, finally a, a final ruling that ruled that those exposures and those diseases were a uh, result of their exposure on the job, as well as to uh, contaminate drinking water similar to what it was here, mm -hmm. and, and ordering significant compensation to those families. But it took 20 years to get to that point. Yeah. In Korea, there was a really very effective community and worker-led group called SHARPS, which led a whole campaign to focus on Samsung. And again, the the what what precipitated it was originally one young woman who died of cancer after working at Samsung. And her father began to research that and found out that several other workers, some of who worked in close proximity to her, also had re recently died of cancer. Mm. And that led to a, a it, what became an international campaign to get Samsung to change its practices and to make amends to the family. Um, and again, after years and years of fighting, they finally were able to get Samsung to agree. They, they brought them to, uh, to the table to negotiate. They got the Samsung CEO to appear at a press conference and apologize to the families for their behavior, uh, which is, you know, unheard of. In, in the Korean culture, an apology like that is a really, really important gesture. Yeah. Uh, but they then ended up putting up, you know, tens of millions of dollars to improve their own technology and and to establish an institute for health and safety. And those are all now being implemented. Uh, the results are 
I think probably mixed and I'm not not up to speed on on what's actually the most current results there but those are two examples of some of the the issues that have gone on that have you know continued uh, the, the work over these issues but in terms of developing a industry-wide study of birth defects and cancer which have been the two most uh, outcomes of concern there there has been nothing and you know, people around the world continue to agitate for that. We did a big series of presentations at the American Public Health Association mm. um, to bring these issues forward several years ago. And we had a, a series of workshops and we brought in epidemiologists from, again, around the world to make presentations. That's all up on their website now. And we also uh, drafted a resolution, which they ended up adopting, calling on the industry to do a much better job in terms of protecting workers and communities, calling for studies that, calling for monitoring. They don't even do monitoring in the workplaces. They say it's too expensive. So the the amount of data that is is available is is pretty minuscule compared to the the massive scope of this industry, and that continues to be the case. Yeah, uh, I have uh, so I have one, basically one other kind of general topic in addition to going back to the CHIPS Act and implementation of the CHIPS Act. Why don't we talk about the CHIPS Act first? Uh, What, you know, the latest of what, when you and I spoke, Congress had, I think, just fairly recently passed the CHIPS Act, which is the $54 billion to, 52 or $54 billion to promote the, bring CHIP semiconductor manufacturing back to the U.S. And we talked, as we've talked about during this conversation at different points, some of the implications of that, of restarting that production here in the U.S. without necessarily the adequate workplace safety, pollution controls, et cetera. So the law has passed. There, You had talked about some attempts to get some provisions in the law that were unsuccessful. And now we're at the I would say probably the very early stages of implementation of the law and and what have you been doing on that score on that front we're we're working with again our same group of allies mostly nationally but also t- to some degree internationally because there's a similar chips act going forward now in Europe um and and the 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 geopolitics of this thing have gotten so dicey that People in places like Korea and Taiwan and other places are paying close attention to what's going on. Because as as you may know, the U.S. is at the same time trying to strong arm their their allies to stop doing any kind of business with China. And so it's, I mean, there's a lot of moving parts to this whole thing. But we continue to try to get our sets of issues into the implementation and and, um, are preparing to submit to Department of Commerce, which is running the whole show, proposals for what we'd like to see going out in in their grants to, again, provide uh, training to the workers, uh, maybe through the community colleges, which seems like it's where a lot of this is going to happen, that has a curriculum that actually focuses on how to protect yourselves from exposure to these chemicals. And we want to also work with local communities to help them understand what are going to be some of the impacts and how they can better plan for that. So for instance, there are groups of people in upstate New York and Syracuse, which is preparing for the Micron uh, facility up there. And they're trying to figure out a lot of these issues. So we're working with them. There are groups 
in in central Ohio where Intel plans to put up their new chip factory. Again, trying to figure out where the water is going to come from, what they're going to be able to do with the wastewater, um, whether or not they can get curriculum into the community colleges. So, and and in in the, the Arizona, as we mentioned, there there's a couple of new proposals there, but the main one is TSMC, the the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, which is the world's leading producer now of of advanced chips, and they do something like 80% of all the most advanced chips in the world being produced by this one company, which is based in Taiwan. And for the first time, they're talking about developing a a new factory in, in uh, Arizona, which would produce, you know, not the top level uh, of, of chips, but the next best. And so that would again be, you know, a new breakthrough in terms of the supply chain of having, some pretty advanced chips available uh, in in case there is. And of course, what people are focusing on, what happens if there is increasing conflict between China and Taiwan? And worst case, if if China follows through on some of their threats to, you know, basically take over Taiwan, that would be a conflagration. And if, if the chip industry in Taiwan were destroyed or somehow significantly damaged, uh, through conflict there, that would have huge repercussions on the whole global supply chain. So people are very, very aware and concerned about that. And that's one of the main drivers behind this whole push to bring home the chip industry, which the irony, of course, is that it was developed here. It, then we lost it and now bringing it back. And the 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 challenge from our point of view is that, the again, the memory uh, institutional memory of most people in this country is is gone. Just as we, the the manufacturing know how is was gone, uh, the institutional memory of what these hazards are is is largely gone. So yeah. we're we're trying to find ways of reminding people what what the problems have been and what they need to do to get ready to get prepared for these new chip plants and realizing that it's not just one new mega facility. It's it's all the suppliers that are going to be connected with a new chip fab. A fab is like a, a city of its own, and hmm. it has many many different suppliers bringing in materials on a fairly regular basis, including chemical shipments, including component shipments. There's going to be a lot of of new facilities built all around these new fabs. So it's not just one thing; it's going to be a whole complex, and and the the impact on. Uh, smaller communities. I'm thinking of Ohio right now mm-hmm. where they're putting this thing out in a, a rural area that has no idea what's coming, has no, never had anything close to this happen in that neighborhood. It's going to radically transform things. And and we're, we're working with groups there in Ohio now trying to figure out what they can do to best educate people. We're putting together a series of fact sheets on chemical usage, on water usage, on wastewater, on um, the inadequacy of the existing hazardous material standards. And so we're, we're to get those out to both the Commerce Department, but also local officials and state officials, and then looking for hooks where you can um, get some leverage to try to get some of this stuff actually incorporated. Because you see already in the in the press pushback from industry and some governments saying, oh, there's already so many strings attached to this. God, now they want childcare, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, it, it, 
when when you're talking about fifty two billion dollars of basically corporate welfare coming from the federal government, you know, you damn well better put some strings on that is my my opinion. And you better make sure that, that money is going to be not only wisely used, but it's going to be used in ways that are going to uh, stop harming people. Yeah. And at this point, we I would say we're we're still at, at square one in terms of trying to get that to happen. But we're, I would say, fairly far along in the planning phase of how to get this to happen. And there's still time to get this done before the money flow starts and the real construction starts. So it's, it's going to be a long-term struggle. And anytime there is government subsidy for something, it's an opportunity to put into the, the political decision-making process proposals for conditioning some of that that funding to, to make sure that the kinds of issues that we're concerned about are addressed. Yeah. Otherwise, you and I will be having another conversation in 20 years about all the yeah. taxpayer yeah. money that's now well, being spent <laughs> in Phoenix and Ohio and New York. Well, I, I, I exactly. Except it, it won't be you and me. It'll be our children or our grandchildren. Yeah, you know? yeah exactly. So. Well, so that actually goes to the last uh, issue I want to talk about. And just to say, as that develops over the next year, two years, whatever, maybe we'll get to have another conversation just about how that's going, not necessarily long and in-depth. But I guess I want to just talk for a few minutes about taking a step back from the policy, about your experience running an organization for, well, creating an organization, more than one, really. I'm thinking of Silicon Valley Tax Coalition, but then you've done other things. The creation of these organizations, the running of the organizations, what that experience is like, because there's, I mean, well, a couple of things. One, there's advocacy and then there's management. And even in my experience, there's, you know, some people are good at one, not so good at the other, or they, they like the advocacy. That's their, that's what got them into this work. And, but then, you know, there's, you have to raise money or you have to, you know, hire staff or whatever it is. So I'm just kind of interested in a, those kinds of things um, how your experience was and B, uh, well, I don't know. You don't have to, you don't have to get the address them in this order. This is how they're coming to me. The other one is if you would have advice, I mean, my, my hope and expectation is that new organizations are going to arise. It's not just going to be the ones that exist now there. There's young people. There's going to be people in Ohio or, you know, wherever, whether it's around these issues or plastic burning or PFAS, there's always kind of new, many starting at the local level on the ground to deal with problems that are presented at the local or state level. So if you'd have any advice from your experience on, on sort of that idea of creating an organization, an advocacy organization in the environmental and worker health space. And then I guess the last thing was I mean, you might want to answer this one first. It, it relates to, so the idea, for example, of the protest in front of Michael Dell at the trade show where people are dressed as prisoners, you know, wearing e-waste or the protest you were going to do at, uh, that Bill Gates flipped out about, or, I mean, you described many different things you've done over the years. You guys were always coming up with reports to do and press events as well as hearings and organizing. So did all those come from, did all those ideas come from you? Were there other people with you or how did those different ideas come come about? Um, it's, it's almost a cliche, but 
it's really true that it takes a whole village to make things happen. And I've been extremely fortunate over the years in working with very, very talented people who are creative, who are dedicated advocates, activists. And, you know, I, we also pay attention. I mean, there's a synergy between different groups working on stuff. I'm just thinking now that another really effective protest I thought was done by Greenpeace back when they were focusing on electronics for a while. And they got a team of people up on top of the roof at the Hewlett Packard facility in Palo Alto. And they painted in very large letters, which they then photographed from a helicopter from the sky. It said HP equals hazardous products. And again, that went out all around the world. And, you know, HP at the time was trying to be the responsible company in all of this. And and it re- that really shook them up. And I talked to one of their key people a couple of years later, and she told me that that was the most important thing that had happened internally because it did shake them up and that it made them realize that they had to be doing a lot more in terms of managing their their hazards and in terms of looking for safer alternatives. And they developed one of the first safer alternative strategies of any of the electronics companies. And, and mm. it was, I, I think, you know, not entirely, but significantly spurred on by that action by Greenpeace. So I do think that those kinds of activities can be extremely effective. And, but it, it, you know, it's, it's never one person doing that. Another thing that we did one time back when the, the, um, Samsung campaign was going on in Korea with Sharps. People all around the world did did their own support actions. And we one night went out with a, a projector that projected onto their headquarters here in San Jose um, a video of the workers in in uh, in Korea with with slogans on it saying Samsung kills workers, uh, stop poisoning workers, that kind of thing. And so yeah. Those kinds of activities, I think, continue to be effective. And, and think about it from this standpoint: if you're a an Amer- particularly an American company that is a brand sensitive company, i.e., meaning that they sell products to millions of consumers and that they are extremely sensitive to their public image because they don't want people to stop buying their products for you know, whatever reason and jump over to somebody else because there are options. <clears throat> so they're all extremely yeah. sensitive. And and I would come back to Apple saying that that's probably the the most salient, you know, player in this whole arena on that topic. Apple doesn't make anything themselves. What they make is good public relations. They make good software. They make good strategy. They make good money, but they don't make products. They outsource all the manufacturing. So yeah. um, their image is their is is their maybe their most important product, and so they are therefore extremely brand sensitive. And so just that little little thing we did back at at the launch of the iPod really shook them up. And so in that sense, they're they're kind of thin skinned. And I think if you realize, and, and same with, with Dell, I mean, particularly with a company that has the name of the founder on the company, that's a pretty enticing target for, for groups that have, have a beef. And, and so I think that understanding that and, and, and whether it's toxics or whether it's, you know, any other kind of corporate responsibility, 
you know, I think groups groups are learning how to do that. And so the the uh, back to the question about who who is it that comes up with these ideas? It's 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 almost a gestalt. It's almost you know in the ether, and that people float around ideas, and you know, particularly now with sharing things over the internet, you come up with an idea, you see something you like, you can actually put it into practice. So I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of this kind of stuff. Yeah. The second question was sort of about the management versus advocacy. Oh yeah. And, and yeah. One, one thing I, I learned, I think fairly early on is that advocates don't necessarily make good managers. And I consider myself to be a much better advocate than I do manager. Um, in fact, I don't like management. I was never very good at it. I, I did it when I when I used to do it. I did it reluctantly and not very well. And I think that that's a pretty, I would say, almost standard phenomenon that organizations are oftentimes formed initially by activists and advocates because that's what their passion is, and they decide they need an organization to help fulfill that their their goals. Uh, and then they have to figure out, well, how do you actually run an organization? And that's it's a very complicated kind of a thing. You have to, you know, first of all, you have to do fundraising, which is a pain in the ass. And most people don't like doing that. And most people aren't very good at it, but it's essential. And so you have to find people who are, you know, dedicated to doing that, to be able to run an organization, to fuel the organization, because you have to have dedicated staff to to actually run things and manage things and it, it, it uh, the more the more impact you want to have the more resources you have to have to be able to put into it and so not only did do we have to find good fundraisers we had to find good managers and we never really called it this but what i what i came to rely on was a a model that had a a managing director or a, in a corporate world it would be a chief operating officer, but the person who knew how to, how to manage budgets, who knew how to manage staff, who knew how to do program management and to make sure that program staff were, you know, carrying out what, what the, the strategy was with in setting some benchmarks and, and checking in regularly and periodically on, on progress on how things were going um, to help manage staff dissent or uh, disagreements when that arose. All those are really, really difficult but essential kinds of things to be able to, to manage. And again, I, that, I never considered that to be my strong suit, but I eventually got to the point where I realized that I needed to bring in other people to, to fill in for what my, my own weaknesses were and to be able to rely on them and to, and to make sure that they were people who were themselves really talented and strong leaders so that they would, you know, be able to, to implement the, the, the shared mission of everybody and not get bullied around by an executive director who thought he knew better. And I think that that's one of the challenges of, of any kind of emerging NGO is that, you know, and, and at the time when I finally decided it was time for me to get out of that and retire, we, we had to go through a big process of, of um, transition planning. And there was a whole school of thought. And 
uh, that had been growing up around that and with consultants and lots of writings, et cetera. But the, the, um, the, the, the main uh, topic at the time was termed founder syndrome and that a, a founder was thought to be a real problem in terms of transitioning because if he, if he didn't make a complete break, that the founder would still be hovering over everything and still have influence, whether it was direct or indirect. So we had to deal with all those kinds of issues. And I wouldn't say we did it really well, but we, we at least tried to understand it and confront it. And it's, it's, I mean, all of those issues I think are endemic and we were never a big organization compared to, you know, what, what you're used to and what, what, you know, the, the big, whether it's labor or environmental or any other kind of organization, yeah, we never had a staff that was bigger than 15 or 20 people. We never had a budget and, you know, the, the multi-million dollars. We always had trouble raising funds. We couldn't get local money because all the local money was tied into the tech industry. We ended up getting funding from a lot of East Coast foundations, but that continues to be an issue. And and as as I think we maybe discussed before, the 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 funding community, the environmental funding community, now seems to be, you know, almost uniquely focused on climate change, and so trying to get funding for uh, issues that uh, of, of occupational environmental health is, I think, probably even more difficult now than it used to be. Yeah. In, in terms of, of the, what, what I'm currently doing with the international campaign, it's really a network. It's, it's not even a, a coalition. We have, we have basically zero staff. Uh, the resources are minuscule, uh, but we rely on networking with other groups and finding groups that can take the lead on certain topics and certain issues and then supporting them. And so we, we do, I would say it's more strategic support as well as uh, technical assistance. And, and at this point, that's, that's kind of the way we're managing. And is that you and Mandy doing that together? Then? Yeah. <clears throat> Any other thoughts for somebody starting out who's just at the ground level of wanting to make a difference in their community? Well, <laughs> I think be, be bold. Don't be intimidated. It's so easy to get scared off on taking on a, a challenge, particularly if you're dealing with, you know, some important local institution, whether it's a company or a government or individual or whoever. And so I think don't be afraid to try and then try to overcome what I think is still really an important dynamic of, you know, the, the traditional wisdom, well, you can't fight city hall. Well, you, you can, but you can't do it unless you try. And, you know, and then I'm hearing my, my dad in the background saying, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. You know, it's, uh-huh. it's, it's basic like that. And sometimes my experience was you can surprise yourself. You can surprise other people because oftentimes trying something is, is not only new for you, it's new for everybody else. And, and particularly if, if the, the people that you are, focusing on or not used to, you know, a um, sophisticated professional way of, of challenging you back or dampening what you're trying to do or diverting you or crushing you or whatever it is, oftentimes they're not very sophisticated either. And so (laughs) don't be afraid of, of people that seem or institutions that seem to be powerful that, uh, you know, (laughs) there's a Leonard Cohen line about 
there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And I think it's looking for those cracks to bring light into a situation of previous darkness. And you can have fun doing that. And I think the other thing that that reminds me of is some of the best work we did was with the Electronics Take Back Coalition. And there was a, a, a woman who was the manager of that who was really terrific, Barbara Kyle, who was a, a brilliant manager. And she was one of the rare people who was able to be both a and a good manager as well as a good strategist and activist. Mm-hmm. But we also had fun doing that and, you know, writing songs, getting together and, and just, you know, having fun. And if, if it's not fun, um, if it's just all tedium all the time and drudgery, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to go very far, I don't think. And, and you know, who's going to want to be part of an effort that's drudgery all the time? Um, you have to, and there's going to be some of that for sure, but it, 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 it can't be the whole thing. And there needs to be ways of, of uh, you know, enjoying doing what you're doing and finding ways to, you know, get you, keep, keep yourself motivated. And I think that that, and, and sometimes I think in the long-term continuing to be motivated when things are down or when things are going in and in there's difficulties. I think those are the times that it's, it's tough. And, and you look around for inspiration. And I, I, I continue to come back to, there's a, a Spanish poet who talked about how there is no road. We make the road as we go. And the only, only way you can ever see the road is when you look back to see where you've come from. But when you look forward, you, you're the path, path breaker, pathfinder yourself. And I think that's, that's exciting. It's scary. But it, it, it can be extremely fulfilling, particularly when you look back and you see that you really have come a long way. So I think f- trying to find whether whether it's a Spanish poet or whether it's some other kind of inspiration to keep keep you focused when you're down, I think you need to find ways of doing that. And so looking back now from where you are now to back then. You know, things have changed dramatically since then. And I think that young people are, you know, so much more aware and savvy than I was when I was you know, 20, 21 years old. Yeah. And, and I think that there is a, a much higher level of awareness of, of, you know, various forms of injustice, particularly the economic disparity. I think people, and, and, and the racism, the, the awareness is just orders of magnitude higher now than it was then. And so I think that I, I have a significant amount of, of um, hope and, and, optimism that that young leaders who are emerging and who I see doing things are, you know, going to be light years ahead of where we were when we were starting to build things. It doesn't mean that they're going to know how to avoid all the management kinds of issues that we just talked about. It doesn't mean that they're not going to face the same kinds of challenges and the same kinds of of, um, discouragement. But I I think that I I am somewhat hopeful that they're going to be able to address those issues that they will be aware of them that they i think there's a, a a culture of working more collaboratively now more collectively I, I see that in in a number of movements that are being run by young people mm-hmm. and and just the enthusiasm whether you're talking about the sunrise movement in the environmental arena whether you're talking about some of the groups like moms demand action or or some of the other uh, gun sense groups that are out there all across the board. And and you see people now focusing a lot more on economic justice than, than we ever have in the past. 
So that all gives me cause for some optimism and that, that people will be starting well advanced of where, where I was and that will therefore uh, hopefully be able to make an even bigger difference. Well, Ted, <laughs> you've been unbelievably generous with your time. And I just want to thank you for talking with me about your life and your work and your career. Well, thank you. This has been actually fun for me to just kind of go back and remember some of these things, some of which I hadn't thought about in a while. And and I, you know, hope that there are people who listen to this and can learn something from it, and maybe be motivated to. <laughs> there was a guy uh, in the Bay Area in the uh, back in the seventies named Scoop Nisker, and he did the community news for one of the radio stations. And he always signed off saying, if you don't like the news, go out and make some of your own. And that's that's really kind of a message that I took to heart and continue to. And that's something that I think young people are doing now, whether they know about Scoop Nisker or not. But they're they're looking around. They're saying, we don't like this news. We're going to go make it better. The Toxic Avengers podcast is produced by me, Daniel Rosenberg. You can visit our website at ToxicAvengersPodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at ToxicAvengerPod. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening. Send your feedback and guest requests to ToxicAvengersPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of the Toxic Avengers Podcast.